Coming up, Labour starts the search for a new leader, but is the party ready to learn any lessons from its enormous defeat? Plus, the government constructs a new cliff edge, and we look back to a year when there was, to be honest, rather too much politics. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this post-election pre-Christmas podcast. Now, normally we would spend the next half hour or so of our last episode of the year looking back over the past 12 months. Instead, we're going to spend most of our time looking back over the past week. Because the more we learn about the Conservatives' victory last week, the more astonishing it appears. It was the sixth successive election at which the Conservative Party increased its share of the vote. The third successive time they have done that while in government, which is supposed to be impossible. And the scale of the victory could have been even bigger had it not been for Nigel Farage. An initial analysis suggests the Brexit party actually deprived the Tories of victory in a further 20 seats. So the Conservative majority could easily have been 100. But despite all that, Boris Johnson knows that this new coalition on which he built his extraordinary victory is a fragile one. Working class voters in the North and the Midlands, for whom the Tories have been toxic for decades, have only lent him their votes. And if he can't deliver on those people's priorities he keeps banging on about, then those votes could be lost next time. Hence a Queen's speech full of promises to invest in the health service, the police and public services. And this move to ban any extension to post-Brexit trade talks, all designed to persuade those newly converted Tory voters that Johnson means business. We'll get on to all of that in a moment, but we're going to start with the Labour Party and its very public meltdown. The Tories cheered Jeremy Corbyn as he entered the Commons chamber this week, as well they might, because he probably did more to secure their landslide win than most of them did. Mr Corbyn did look and sound like a broken man, limply going through the motions. Yet, he apparently plans to lead the opposition for at least three months, all the way through the Brexit deadline and beyond. Meanwhile, his potential replacements are on manoeuvres, and while they are busy appealing to the Labour Party's membership, who will, after all, decide the leadership, it's far from clear that that means they're actually thinking about how to win back the millions of voters the Labour needs if it's to escape from the cliff edge that it's currently dangling over. Let's bring in Robert Meekin at this stage. Robert, but before we get on to discussing the potential replacements of Jeremy Corbyn, let's just deal with the fallout from last week. Apparently he had this hellish two-hour meeting with Labour MPs, they don't buy his claim that Brexit was the sole reason for this defeat. And to be honest, they should know. There was one defeated MP, I think up in Hindburn, who said that his team had been playing Corbyn bingo while they were out canvassing. They were ticking off all the reasons people were giving on the doorstep for not voting Labour. And sometimes they get them all on one street. Brexit, anti-Semitism, the giveaway manifesto, the dubious past connections, the total lack of leadership. But from those around Corbyn, there is this absolute determination to stick to this narrative, no matter how implausible, that the sole cause of this defeat was Brexit. Now, look, Brexit was obviously a very big factor, but you can't ignore the fact that the toxicity of the party leader was a big factor too. Yeah, I think the the Corbynite comical alley-like defence, or these uh, 
few days on that it wasn't about Jeremy Corbyn at all, but just about Brexit. Obviously, is looking um, increasingly ludicrous and, and tired now. And of course, a great deal of what remains of his parliamentary party simply aren't going to buy that. They, as you say, were on the doorstep. They heard exactly what people thought of Jeremy Corbyn and uh, aren't going aren't to buy into uh, this uh, this narrative now. So, it, yes, of course, it was a, it was a thankless uh, task for Corbyn having to face those surviving MPs and inevitably got quite a kicking. One of the new Labour MPs actually said in the meeting uh, of the Parliamentary Labour Party this week that there was a lot for them to be happy about in, in the results of this election. Now, funnily enough... She got jeered at by her new colleagues. There's also the fantastic case of Mary Cray, the now former Labour MP, who was packing up her possessions in the Palace of Westminster when she saw Jeremy Corbyn posing for selfies with a group of young people, suggested that instead of doing that, he should maybe be apologising to them for ruining their future and gave him a 20-minute tirade that she described as the hairdryer treatment. Tempers are, are, are running high and it suits, I think, a uh, significant uh, portion of the Corbynites to just keep on still banging on about the so-called you know, corrupt print media, indeed the corrupt BBC, as they want us to believe, who, who unfairly portrayed them and the fact that the Tory lies were allowed to sell so hard. And it, it, it's their comfort zone to believe these things. Yes, a great deal of the print media was hostile towards Corbyn. Always, you know, most of the time through my lifetime, they've been hostile towards Labour leaders, with the exception of Tony Blair, probably. Yes, Boris's simplistic slogan, however cynical, did cut through. But if they really just want to place the blame at those doors, then they are living in never, never land. It may suit them right now because the truth is probably just too brutal for them, but they're not going to get anywhere by just still playing the victim card and saying it was all down to some terrible conspiracy against them. Well, you see this online, all these Labour activists who are sort of effectively calling the voters that whose support they've lost stupid. You know, I have seen people, I've, I've heard people, committed Labour supporters, who've said... Some of them have said to me in the last few days, look, well, these people in the north, they deserve what they get now. They deserve what's coming to them if they were so stupid as to do this. I'm not absolutely certain that telling the voters whose support you have lost that they're stupid and they deserve whatever misfortune you believe is coming their way is absolutely the best way to start reconnecting with them. There's a a significant uh, portion of, of Labour MPs who are telling it as it is, to, to their credit, who are saying, you know, we, we, we're trying to understand and probably do understand why a great section of our uh, working class vote in the North and Midlands deserted us. But again, I think the Corbyn loyalists don't go in that direction in a truthful manner because the truth will really hurt. And I think that's why they, they're trying to decorate it in all, the, in all these other conspiracy theories that we're hearing on the airwaves presently. Their supposedly natural working class vote in huge parts of England was taken for granted, has been taken for granted for a long time, and they failed to understand those people's concerns. They failed to get the many, many, many warning signals that were very bluntly put their way. There's always been, I think, a section of committed Labour Party activists, and this is something I think that the Blairites and the Corbynistas have in common, actually. There's always been a strain in Labour that's found the working class a bit of a disappointment. You know, why won't they just do what we're telling them is good for them? 
And and there was a there was a strain of this at the height of Blairism, a kind of middle class, slightly patronizing view of the working class. And you've seen it again this time from from Jeremy Corbyn's support base, sort of younger, metropolitan, London based in many cases, sort of looking at places in the north and the Midlands that have deserted Labour this time and sort of shaking their head in disappointment. It's like, I don't understand. Why would you do? We told you what was good for you. Why haven't you done what we told you was good for you. Some of them still a bit bemused as to why they've lost because all of their friends voted Labour and all of their friends posted pictures on social media and, 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 and comments on Election Day saying they were voting and Labour had the best memes. So how did they lose? If we dare to look back briefly this last 20 plus years and the euphoria that initially greeted you know, Tony Blair's very different sort of Labour Party. And you can you can say with the with the ease of hindsight that they 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 chose to gloss over the real problems of some of these communities we're talking about. Uh, mining communities where that have been decimated, which are on the floor. Yes, these people still voted Labour, but the Blairite sort of Labour Party did take them for granted and did present it as this great new cool Britannia, this forward thinking Britain. But still, those those people in many of these communities were still rather left behind, almost really a bit of an inconvenience to them. But of course, they relied on their votes. We come now all these years later with Corbyn. And again, now in theory, you think this is a harder left party. This is closer to the traditions of of these communities. But it turned out they, they were they were hundreds of miles away, quite literally, in, in, their, in, the, in the way that they treated them. Now, many of the potential candidates to replace Jeremy Corbyn were lurking at the back of that brutal meeting of Labour MPs earlier this week. After all, the first hurdle that they all need to get over is to win the support of 22 of their colleagues to be in with a chance. Some have broken cover already. Emily Thornbury-Robert has become the first person to confirm that she's going to go for the leadership. And her pitch seems to be based on the idea that she always knew that the party's convoluted stance on Brexit was a disaster, and she was so convinced that it was a disaster that she defended it during the election campaign. Now, in a way, that's slightly unfair because the Labour High Command kept people like Emily Thornbury as far away from the TV cameras as they could for large parts of the campaign. It is hard to believe, though, that after the events of the last few months and, and, and studying the results from last week, that you would convince yourself that the answer to Labour's problems is to appoint a North London Remainer veteran MP as leader. Now, presumably, had Emily Thornbury been in charge six months ago, Labour would actually have become an explicitly pro-Remain party, and those voters who defected to the Tories would have done so in equal, perhaps bigger numbers. The political tide would not appear to be with her. Look, of course, we could be proved very wrong in the weeks and months ahead. But as you say, the, the image of Emily Thornbury presently, that North London, Islington, Remainer, you, you you wouldn't think that would tick the boxes in terms of where Labour possibly needs to go in, in winning back, you know, the, the so-called Northern Heartlands. I mean, I I also you know raise a very quizzical eyebrow at the sort of the wittering on about it must be a woman, it must be a Northerner presently, which I found I find rather patronising. They think that's the only way they can reconnect with their vote. It does someone it just because someone's from London or from 
Plymouth. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that they can't necessarily connect with the Northern and Midlands working class electorates. So, yeah, I, I happen to be quite old fashioned to believe a talented, imaginative, versatile, charismatic politician can reach reach many areas. Well, Keir Starmer also suffers, of course, from being a North London Remainer, though he is doing his level best to shed those labels as quickly as possible, talking about the way the party needs to stick to its roots, not to drift to the right. He's praised Jeremy Corbyn for putting anti-austerity on the agenda. Look, the bookies seem to think he is in with a shout, but I would have thought that the party membership would have viewed him as potentially suspect, not a true believer in the Corbyn project that he is now heaping praise on. And also, of course, one of the chief architects of the Brexit compromise that went down so badly in Labour's now former heartlands. Yeah, I mean, Starmer looks to have stronger foundations than Emily Thornberry presently, but certainly in my imagination. And he will have, you would think, a, a, a decent amount of support in the so-called moderate wing of the, of the Labour Party. But again, he, he, he would seem right now a hard sell in terms of the internal machinations of the Labour Party. I, I think actually for for Britain at large, general public at large, he might he might be a, a reasonable bet for them. But I, I'm just not sure the way the direction of travel, this rather panicked direction of travel the Labour Party is now heading in after that calamitous defeat. I'm not sure if they're ready for the reasonable remain orientated North London, dare I say, rather dull Keir Starmer. I'm just not sure that's going to really, again, float people's boat. You mentioned uh, your um, unhappiness at this talk about needing particularly a woman and particularly a northern woman. But if we look at a northern woman who, who could be in with a shout, Lisa Nandy, to her credit, was warning for a long time of the danger that Labour's confused stance on Brexit pose for constituencies like hers in Wigan. Uh, Jess Phillips' name has come up a lot. I think she appeals to lots of people who aren't Labour members. But the problem is that she's also loathed by a lot of Labour activists because she's never hidden her dislike of Jeremy Corbyn. And then there's Rebecca Long-Bailey, who is still, I think, seen as the shoe-in for this job, favourite of the Corbyn-McDonnell axis in the party, resolutely left-wing, loyal to the project, and doesn't have all of Jeremy Corbyn's baggage, even though she comes from the same political mould. But you can't help wondering if, having lost on this scale, a younger female Corbyn-alike is the solution. There's been the talk, obviously, of Rebecca Long-Bailey running for leadership with a... With a supposed sort of joint ticket with uh, her friend and flatmate Angela Rayner, both from um, a Greater Manchester area, both you know, relatively young women. Clearly, you would think on paper that this pair could be in a very strong uh, position. And I actually think, yeah, to be fair to Re Rebecca Long-Bailey, what I've seen of her, if you imagine her at the dispatch box against Boris Johnson, it could be interesting how Boris would cope with with a, a strong northern woman. Might find the experience rather awkward at times. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure he would. But if we dare to look further forward, is she someone who can really look like she has the authority and gravitas as a future prime minister? Now, the British electorate are ruthless when it comes to this. Yeah, they, they smell authority or lack of authority in someone. Just I mean, Jeremy Corbyn being the extreme negative example of that. And so it's whether she, she can convince, first of all, the Labour Party, I think they could well buy into the idea, but then the country at large, whether she could really cut the mustard and, 
as of now, I'd, I'd, I would say that's pretty uncertain. You know, the scale of the task for whoever the next Labour leader is, is absolutely huge. But that doesn't mean it's insurmountable. Labour would need to gain 123 seats at the next election to get an overall majority. Less to deprive the Tories of a majority and move into a hung parliament. Now, that sounds like a lot because it is a lot. But in 1997, Labour gained 147 seats in a single election. In 2010, the Tories gained 108. These things are doable, but you need two things to happen. You need the party and government to screw up. Now, that's out of your hands. But, you know, this is Boris Johnson we're talking about. So something's clearly going to go wrong at some stage. But the other thing you need is a desire to win and to listen to the people whose support you need in order to win. Now, at the moment, I know we're only a week in, but at the moment, the conversation is entirely insular. This is the Labour Party talking to itself. Candidates trying to win over that hard left group that make up the bulk of the membership. At some stage, you have to involve the rest of the country in the conversation if you want to be in with a chance of actually getting back into government. There is every chance that whoever gets appointed in the next few months as Labour leader will end up resigning in four or five years' time, having led Labour to another heavy defeat. Well, meanwhile, Boris Johnson brings his withdrawal agreement bill back to the Commons, but this time the outcome is in no doubt and attention's already switching to the trade talks that will follow and to a very tight timetable, tighter than many might have thought with the confirmation that the government wants to change the law to ban any extension to the transition period. Now, in theory, that means that this time next year we'll either leave with a trade deal in place or leave without a deal in place. Yes, it's another cliff edge for us to stay up all night worrying about. And despite that, Robert, many in the EU think this is a phantom threat because there's nothing actually to stop Boris Johnson changing the law again at some point in 2020 to allow for a delay or to push back most things to a second set of negotiations so that you can pass, you know, a one-page trade agreement and say, there we go, we've agreed something and now we can move on to the rest of it. There is this assumption is that it's designed both to focus the minds of the negotiators and to send a message to those pro-Brexit Tory voters that they mean business. Yeah, I think we we take it with a large pinch of salt just amid all the euphoria of Boris's big win. He wants to be seen to be hitting the ground running after his, you know, famous slogan of let's get Brexit done. He's, he's, he's not going to start talking about sort of prolonging the process. I think we know that there's every chance that it's not going to go to the time scale that's, that's currently being presented. But I think it's just a good bit of old fashioned cynical politics on Boris's part to say, no way, we're going to guarantee there's going to be no no room for maneuver, no room for any extension. We'll just leave, you know, just let's see how let's see how things are by later this year. I, I, don't, I think we might be having a rather different conversation. Now, while Boris Johnson's huge majority means that whatever he does achieve in those negotiations, he will presumably not struggle to get it through the Commons, that majority won't make the slightest difference to the way EU negotiators deal with Britain. And he has set a ludicrously tight timetable, whether he means it or not. In effect, at the moment, about six months to try and make progress before you'd have to start the process of ratifying whatever deal you have. I mean, six months is barely enough time to tie down buying a house. 
Yeah, Boris always comes across as you know, the the clever boy in the class who just does his homework homework at the eleventh hour, you know. And this this is this has got the the whiff of that really. He always he just seems to revel in these ludicrously tight uh, timescales. Um, his supporters, of course, will say, "Oh, well, you naysayers were, were saying only a, only a few weeks, months ago that uh, he would never have got some sort of a deal agreed uh, by by Halloween." Well. Yeah, to be fair to his his team, they did in principle get a, an agreement. So right right now he's got the momentum with him, and he's he's able to get away with making these statements because so far he's put his money where his mouth is. Now, for all the excitement of election night, the campaign was, let's be honest, something of a dud, even for an obsessive politics nerd like me. Now, was that because the campaign really was dull, or was it just one big moment of political drama too many? in a year when there was, for most ordinary people, just too much politics. Uh, this, Robert, is a curtailed look back at the year, given the drama of the last week. I mean, it's, we think we started 2019. Theresa May had just survived her no-confidence vote in the Conservative Party and then brought her withdrawal agreement bill to the Commons, where it was subjected to the biggest ever Commons defeat. And then in some sort of weird masochism strategy... She kept bringing it back for further defeats. Now, I wonder if some people still regret not voting for that deal in the the first couple of months of the year. We always said that probably represented the hardest possible form of Brexit, that any subsequent renegotiations would end up watering things down a bit. And look, Boris Johnson got an amended deal, but in order to do it, he basically had to sell Northern Ireland down the river. And looking back now, you wonder whether, and it, it is definitely wondering whether now, that if the, the Remain side of the argument, if they'd ever been, dare I say, rather more organised and more ruthless, I wonder whether you know they, they quietly think now we, we, we had the Prime Minister over a barrel at that point. You know, we, we, we could have continued to hold her hostage, but we could have steered the direction of things. And yet I think they just got too obsessed with their narrow blinkered party political concerns and it became a bloodletting exercise. They saw a weak prime minister. In the end, they just kept on shouting what they didn't quite like about a deal. In the end, it was only ever going to result finally with her being brought down. Well, that brought one Boris Johnson who's walloped them all out the park. So I think there's a strong argument to say this is a rather self-inflicted wound. I mean, we've been pretty rude about Boris Johnson, not just since he became prime minister, pretty much since we started doing this podcast, you know, for a variety of pretty good reasons. He is not somebody who's ever suggested that he has a core set of principled beliefs. He floats with the wind. He says whatever he believes is in his best personal interest. He seems motivated primarily by advancing the personal cause of Boris Johnson. But we have to pause to admit This man who lied to the Queen, illegally suspended Parliament, kicked dozens of MPs out of his own party, ends the year rewarded with the biggest Commons majority in the best part of 20 years. All of those gambles paid off. He's an utterly fascinating character. You think, I don't think I can be contradicted when I say I don't think he's ever lost an election. If we look back at, you know, going back to London mayoral days, obviously standing for Parliament, he just he wins. And that's, again, a very uncomfortable truth for his many embittered enemies currently licking their wounds. The, the, the man connects 
with voters. He gets away with things that no other politician would be able to get away with. He is, it, it, he's, a, he's a remarkable person. When we step back from just the, the immediate hysteria of the moment, if you step back and look at this political figure and the impact he has had on our national fabric, it, it's, it's profound. And yes, I mean, I... I'd started off into my journalist career, and yeah, he was he was a laughing stock. I remember that when he was first elected as a member of parliament, they were laughing live on television. This is the joke of the night. It's an incredible rise now. Plenty of people who know him and have seen him will say, "Well, we're not, we are, we are, we are not surprised at all." Here's a, a extremely bright, driven, ruthless, ambitious man. He was all, he always had his eye on the prize. But my God, he certainly proved it. When Theresa May was sort of crowned Tory leader without a proper competition. It was in the full knowledge of the fact that she was a pretty awkward performer who was not necessarily best suited to the spotlight. And similarly, when Boris Johnson became prime minister, it was in the full knowledge of the fact that he is, shall we say, a colourful character with a, shall we say, colourful past that may well come back to haunt him. And there are things still lurking around in the background, like his technology lessons, for example, that may come back to haunt him. Now he is prime minister. And when you are prime minister, things are different. You are expected to act differently and the expectations on you are different. And also there's a reminder of just how febrile the atmosphere is and how disloyal voters are and how willing they are to change sides. It's only six months ago that the Conservatives came fifth in the EU elections and got fewer than one in 10 votes. Six months later, they get 43% of the vote and a majority of 80 in the House of Commons. But it's just a reminder, nothing lasts forever. And as much as Boris Johnson now is saying that the party needs to change, the Conservatives need to change because of this new constituency of supporters they have, they'll start to forget that. They'll start to take it for granted. Things will go wrong. And the big test of Boris Johnson it's not necessarily those trade negotiations. It's all the other things that will now come up because there is now the space, the bandwidth, to use that horrible word, at Westminster to actually start dealing with other issues. And that's where the pressure is going to come because the right of the Conservative Party that made Boris Johnson prime minister in the first place does not want him to do the things that the former Labour working class voters who voted Tory this time do want him to do. And healing that divide, building a bridge between those two groups is a very difficult job. Uh, and he is going to have to be more than a clownish game show buffoon to pull it off. Right now we're in the euphoric period for the Conservative Party where they're celebrating demolishing the Labour Party. And, and of course, at the moment, he's, he's being given largely free reign just to bask in the glory. As you say, when you get back down into the day-to-day -day murky, gloomy workings of, of government, uh, things will be different. Yes, there will be the inevitable turf wars in the Tory party. And when it comes to the general public at large, look, we don't ever uh, go around saying, you know what, my goodness, the, the Prime Minister performed very well this month. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really relieved that he's in 10 Downing Street because he's, he's made my life that 2% better uh, in these last few weeks. Prime Minister's get grief, they face crisis after crisis. That's the job description and there's no escaping that. Also, as you say, in terms of the Boris's own personality, his own backstory, look, at the moment it's been, we've all been you know, whipped up in this high drama. First, you have the Brexit negotiations, then a general election. 
as you say, there will be quieter times. And that is when those troublesome and helpful journalists start to dig. That's when a suddenly very unhelpful story will appear on the front of the Sunday Times. And they're, they're, those are the sort of crises that he, he will inevitably have to face. Perhaps, finally, politicians will have time to look at all those other issues that they have largely ignored for the last four years, whether it's the appalling state of the National Health Service, the schools that have to close on Friday lunchtimes while the teachers stand at the school gates asking for money to buy essential equipment, whether it's the crisis in social care that generations of MPs on all sides have done their best to dodge, the housing crisis, the unaffordable cost of buying a home for many people, the huge numbers of people who've been left behind. Whatever your political stance, however you voted last week, it surely can't be acceptable in one of the richest countries in the world that there are thousands of food banks feeding people in work, that there are increasing numbers of people sleeping in shop doorways, that there are millions of children who are growing up in poverty. No party can genuinely view those as things to be proud of, though since 2016 they've been able to point to Brexit as a reason why they haven't been able to do anything about it. Now, though, there's no excuse for failing to tackle them. Brexit no longer stands in their way and the voters will be watching to see what happens next. For now, though, and thank heavens for this, we can put politics on hold for a couple of weeks at least, just to get through Christmas. So thank you. Thank you to Robert. Thanks to you for listening today and over the past year. Have a relaxing break. Merry Christmas. And until we resume again in 2020, goodbye. Goodbye.